Hi, and welcome back to Doc's Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical day, and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii. We hope that Doc's Talk Story inspires listeners and helps medical students navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Riley, and I'm going to be the host for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jeremy King, a pediatric gastroenterologist at Kapilani Medical Center. Dr. King grew up in Pittsburgh, attended medical school at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, pediatric residency at Cooper University Hospital in New Jersey, and then went on to pursue a fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology. Okay, so just to start off, um, can you just tell us a little bit about how, when, and why maybe you chose to go into pediatrics? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's quite a long story, actually. Um, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, when I started medical school. Uh, pediatrics was kind of the, the last thing on my mind, only because, you know, I grew up in a family where both my parents were, were the youngest, and so all of my cousins were older mm. in my neighborhood, and we were kind of the youngest kids, uh, so I wasn't around kids very much mm-hmm. uh, growing up. And so then I ended up uh, kind of having this, really, the experience which got me into gastroenterology um, was when I was on a family medicine rotation and, mm-hmm. and the intern who, uh, I met was super excited about going into gastroenterology mm-hmm. and, uh, he steered me toward doing a rotation, an elective rotation in adult gastroenterology. Okay. And I kind of really enjoyed that rotation and I really could envision myself being an adult gastroenterologist. Um, and so that was my goal. Mm-hmm. And then I did my internal medicine rotation. And I sat listening to an hour-long lecture on hyponatremia, followed by a two-hour lecture on hypokalemia. <laughs> and I decided I can't do that for three years to become an adult gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. And so I actually remember going back to campus because we would have uh, kind of academics on Wednesday afternoons. And my wife was my group leader, mm-hmm. um, before we were married. And she was like, you should go into pediatrics. And I was like, it's not academic enough. And she convinced me that it would be that if wow. I gave it a chance and, and I ended up not being able to get it an elective as a fourth year on the peds wards, but I got an elective in the pediatric ER and I got to see real pediatrics, academic pediatrics and subspecialty pediatrics mm-hmm. being practiced. And I was like, that's it. I wanna do pediatrics. Wow, so for you, it was kind of, you decided that you liked GI first and then you decided that you liked pediatrics. Yeah, so I, I really I really saw myself you know, specializing. I, I, I liked that, I liked the procedural aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really kind of, I kind of went into you know, residency knowing that I wanted to specialize in either gastroenterology or cardiology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what specifically, I guess, drew you to pediatrics? I know you mentioned kind of there's a lot of academics, but what else kind of drew you specifically to pediatrics? Well, what really drew me to pediatrics was my first, after my first shift in the pediatric ER, Mm -hmm. um, we admitted a kid who was pretty sick. And the next day when I came in the next morning for, for my next you know, shift as a fourth year medical student, I had the same uh, ER attending and she said, hey, uh, 
you know, how's that kid doing that you, we admitted last night? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And she was like, well, you should run up to the floor and go and see the kid and see how he's doing. And right. Again, the kid was pretty sick. And I walked, in, I walked into the room the next day, and he's, like, running around like a madman. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. Like, this isn't what sick grown-ups do. Like, we can't get them out of the hospital. Or if we do, we just kind of correct their numbers and patch right. them up, and they come back with the same thing. Uh -huh. But this kid got better, and I just felt like I didn't see that. And it was, it was you know, that, that struck me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've had a lot of other, like, pediatrics um, docs say the same thing. Like, just the resiliency of the kids is, like, so amazing. Um, so you said you considered peds cardiology also. Did you consider anything else along the way? Uh, not really. Those were the two things that I, that I enjoyed the most. Um, you know, early on, I, ha I had, uh, in medical school, um, I did a program called Bridging the Gaps, uh, which was between my first and second year of medical school in the summer. And it was basically a, a, you know, well, the reality is, is, you know, I got paid to ref three-on-three -three basketball games. <gasps> but it, it, along with that, there, there was a lot of uh, opportunities in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that also was, you know, again, dealing with kids and dealing with different outreach pro programs. Um, and so I got exposed to a lot of community mm -hmm. advocacy programs. And mm -hmm. so I did have some thoughts about potentially – you know, adolescent medicine, but, but really I like the procedural aspects, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, of, of cardiology and, and gastroenterology. Mm -hmm. And so it really came down to a head to head battle between those two. Mm -hmm. So what made GI win out in the end? What made GI win out at the end was, was, I don't know if you could call it fate, but so I, I had a plan. So I had set up during my second year of residency, a pediatric gastroenterology rotation mm -hmm. at AI DuPont Hospital for Children, which is part of the Thomas Jefferson system, mm -hmm. in October, and a cardi pediatric cardiology rotation at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in November. Back-to-back, okay. head-to-head battle. Whatever I did, whatever I enjoyed the most is what I was going to apply wow, for the okay. match for. And so midway through my GI rotation, my residency director called me and said, your co-resident is scheduled to do her pediatric ICU rotation in November. Her OBGYN just put her on bed rest because she's pregnant, so she can't do her pediatric ICU rotation next month, so you have to do it. And I said, no, no, no. I, I have back-to-back -back rotation one. set up. Yeah. I have to figure out what I'm going to do with my career and my life. This is, no. And he was like, you're the only one with an elective. You have to do it. <gasps> and so I had to, to do it. I had to, he said, you can do your peds cardiology rotation later, later in the year. And I said, but I, I, I can't apply for the match if I haven't done peds cardiology. I, right. need, I need that. I need that rotation. I need that letters of recommendation. I need, he's like, sorry. And so uh, I I, I couldn't do cardiology until April. And so the last week of my PGI rotation, um, the fellowship director said, look, everybody here really likes you. We know you applied for our program. Why don't we just make your last day into an interview? We'll formally interview you. Wow. And at the end of the interview, he said, look, we're going to rank you first. The spot's yours if you want it. I said, I'll take it. And I went into PGI. 
And then six months later, I rotated on peds cardiology, and I loved it. <laughs> but I was, I, I was locked in. Um, and in fact, at the end of the rotation, and, and I have a pretty good story about that rotation, um, the peds cardiology, the, the, the chief of peds cardiology uh, said to me, look, I know you're, you're already locked into GI, but why don't you apply for the matching cardiology oh next year? And I was like, I can't, I can't. I have too much loyalty. And he said, no, 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 just do one year and then apply for the match. And I have a pretty good, you know, uh, uh. I, I think I have a pretty good idea that you'll get a spot. You should do cardiology. You're kind of meant for it. And I was like, I can't. And he was like, here's my cell phone number. If you change your mind at any point, call me. Um, wow. But I stuck with GI and, and I'm happy that I did. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> um, so, I, well, similarly to your wife, you also got your training as like a DO. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, um, how do you think that helped you um, in your training? Do you think there are any of the skills you learned specifically in like the DO training like helps you now? Well, I, w I won't say specifically the training, but more of the philosophy mm -hmm. I think really fits. Um, I tend to be, you know, uh, you know, a mind, body, spirit mm -hmm. kind of physician. I think that, you know, I, I, there's more to it than, than, than just treating the system or treating the disease. And so I think that's had the biggest mm -hmm. impact on how I practice. Mm -hmm. Just like the holistic kind of approach. Exactly. Did you face any like additional challenges like being a DO applying to like residencies or now? <coughs> so applying to residency, we were really, and my wife and I were kind of locked into there was only one dual approved mm -hmm. uh, residency for pediatrics that you could do in three years. Otherwise, you would have to do a rotating internship for one year and then do three more years mm -hmm. of residency. So you'd kind of almost lose a year mm -hmm. um, unless you went to, to Cooper University Hospital where we, where we did our residency. So, <laughs> so really, we were a little bit handcuffed by that. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, I mean, it, it, it it hasn't really had an impact on my career. I see. So how much exposure do you get to each subspecialty in the pediatrics residency? But yeah, I think, it, I think that depends on where you mm -hmm. do your residency. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is where we did our residency, I would say, you know, our, from our attendings down through the, you know, our, 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 chief residents, senior residents, down through the interns. One of the things that, that I think was the most important aspect of residency is we had a really strong sense of patient ownership. Like mm -hmm. we looked at those patients as our patients. Mm -hmm. And we almost looked at it as if we had to c consult a specialist we almost looked at it as a failure. Like we we felt like we can figure this out. We can do this on our own. We're going to manage these patients. Um, but where I was a fellow, it was quite opposite. It was very subspecialty heavy. And so, you know, I used to, you know, I, I jokingly would say, I would get a phone call from the ER and they would say, oh, we have a consult for you. And I'll say, okay, well, what's the problem? And they would say, oh, you know, we have a 10-year-old here with uh, abdominal pain, headache, sore throat, rash, and fever. And so they would consult GI for the abdominal pain, ID for the fever, wow. dermatology for the rash, uh, ENT for the sore throat. 
And because we had the busiest fellowship program, I would get there first and go, the kid has scarlet fever. Like, you know, there just wasn't a whole lot of thinking. It was, mm. it was, it was very consult heavy. Mm. Um, it, it was really the opposite of what my residency was, where the last thing we wanted to do was call a specialist. Mm -hmm. It's a big difference from how I practice now. Mm. I think as my career has gone on, I've become more and more just a pediatric gastroenterologist mm -hmm. and a pediatric gastroenterologist through and through. Mm -hmm. And when patients will say, you know, I'll say, tell me about your stomach and they'll go, oh yeah, it hurts. But I also get headaches. I'll be like, I don't care about your headaches. I just don't. Like I tell patients jokingly, but kind of not that I'll, 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 I'll point it, you know, below their chin and, 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 uh, and put one hand below my chin and one hand kind of on my pelvis and say, this is the area I care about. Like if your eyes weren't above that, I would never look up above it because <laughs> I only care about your GI tract. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, as, as a fellow, even I was looking in kids' ears and, you know, I was counseling them on, you know, a lot of these other things that I learned because I do feel that in order to be a good pediatric specialist, mm -hmm. you need to be a good pediatrician first. Right, right, right. Are there options to like further subspecialize once you go into PGI? Well, yeah, so... There's a few different things uh, that you can do. So, so some pediat there are multiple um, pediatric hepatology programs mm -hmm. in the country. So uh, you do your three-year fellowship, and then you do an extra year in pediatric hepatology. And so then people that do that tend to practice just hepatology, right, right. just the liver, so sort of mm -hmm. super specialized. Um, there are uh, certain programs where they focus on nutrition or they focus on, you know, short bowel syndrome and things like that. So mm -hmm. uh, intestinal failure. So there are people who super specialize and really, you know, mm -hmm. do focus really on one right. particular problem. Mm -hmm. um, other, another fellowship is, is uh, a, a super specialty in motility. So mm -hmm. there's one year motility program. So people then just focus on kids with gastrointestinal motility issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then how long is the uh, GI fellowship? So it's three years. Um, okay. About a year and a half of it is clinical, where you're seeing patients and things like that. Now, a year and a half is supposed to be dedicated to research. Okay, I see. Um, and I know, like, adult GI is a pretty competitive field. Is pediatrics GI, like, similarly also competitive? Uh, it's it's not quite as competitive as adult GI. Adult GI is very competitive, but out of the pediatric specialists, mm -hmm. I would say prob probably behind cardiology, probably it's the the second most competitive. I see. So, how important is research in the application process for fellowship? Yeah, that's a good question. I think everybody wants to to believe it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it never hurts, but it's not a deal breaker for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it depends again on the program and, and what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, some fellowship programs are very research oriented um, and they, their expectation is that, you know, you're gonna do research as a fellow and then you're gonna stay on and have an academic career. A lot of programs are, are that way. Mm -hmm. They want you to stay in academics and they don't want you to go into private practice. Mm -hmm. But other programs, you know, they're looking for, for patients who, who are going to be good at taking care or, or, or candidates who are, are mm -hmm. going to be good at taking care of patients. 
and 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 so it's not a deal breaker if mm -hmm. you don't have a research background. Right. So I guess are there anything else specific that candidates can do to make themselves stand out? Be interesting. Um, uh, you know, we had to interview my wife and I when we were residents. We we we. She interviewed all the resident candidates. Mm -hmm. I said I don't want to interview people, so I gave everybody the tour, you know, the hospital <laughs> tour. And, you know, I mean, you know, I'd get to know people just by, right. by casual conversation. You kind of get to know them. And, uh -huh. you know, like what my wife always says is, you know, the most important thing about choosing a resident is do they play well with others, right? And for me, it was, is this somebody that I want to be stuck in a call room with for right. 24 hours? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're a good person, you're a nice person. If you're interesting, even better. But, you know, if you're dedicated and you want to work hard um, uh, and, and you're enthusiastic to, to learn and work, I think that's what what we would be looking for. Right, right. I think most programs probably. Uh -huh. I think that could be really encouraging, especially for like the first years and I guess continuing on with stuff being like pass-fail now. I feel like that puts a lot of additional pressure on like different things they have to do to make themselves stand out. Um, but I think just hearing that, just like the work ethic, you know, just like genuinely being a good person, like you have those things down, then you can kind of go far just with that. Yeah, and it, it's that's it. I mean, so if you if you think about a residency program, right, and a spot in a residency program, everybody looks the same on paper, mm -hmm. right? I mean, everybody's letter of recommendations are going to be positive, True. right? Like they jokingly say, you know, even Adolf Hitler's letter of recommendation would be positive. Yeah, he's a good leader. He's a great orator. He's right. But that's it. Like nobody yeah. writes a bad letter of recommendation. Right, right. So it's, it's really hard to separate out on paper. It's mm -hmm. really when you get those candidates mm -hmm. in front of you and you, you get to see who they are mm -hmm. that, that really, um, I think is what stands out. Mm -hmm. um, I also encourage medical students, you know, if there's a particular residency program that they want to go to, rotate there. Because just like with me, with my fellowship, right, you know, once I was there in front of them, they got to know me. They got mm -hmm. to see how I work. Um, they got to know me personally. You know, the spot got offered. You know, had I not, who knows? I mean, exactly. I, I yeah. may not have even gotten an interview because, you know, on paper I look the same as everybody right, else, right, including right. internal candidates. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think we'll just move now into uh, what your day in the life looks like as a pediatrics GI, which I think is the fun part. Um, so I guess what does your typical day look like? If Maybe if you don't have a typical day, like what your week looks like? Yeah, so, in, in, you know, and a fair amount has changed with, with COVID, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, I would say if I go pre-COVID, I mean, my day tends to never end up looking exactly the same as it would at the beginning of the day. Mm -hmm. And so when I have a resident start rotating with me, the first thing I say is, you know, if you're, a, if you're the type of person who needs to know exactly where you're gonna be every minute of every day, you're, you're gonna hate this rotation. Mm -hmm. Because what my day typically looks like is if I, you know, if I drop my kids off at school and then I get to the hospital at eight, um, I'll run through my patient list, kind of, get my day straight in my head and get everything planned, but, you know, go through email. Then usually I start in clinic at 8.30, and, you know, I'll see patients often until noon, and then mm -hmm. hopefully it's one of those days of 
during the week when I'd get to have lunch with my wife. <laughs> and then I would have clinic all afternoon. So I have clinic all day, every day. Mm-hmm. But in between, when I get ahead of schedule, again, I'm on call and on service right. half, half of the days of the year. So uh, during those days, so, you know, usually I'll finish up at noon. I'll run down and see a consult. Then I'll come back and, you know, do clinic in the afternoon. I might get a call about a kid in the ER that I have to run over and see or a foreign body comes in that I have to add on. And so I'm doing all this kind of additional work in in addition to having a full clinic schedule every day. Mm. And so it can be kind of chaotic, but that's really what I like. I love the chaos. Um, I love kind of not knowing what is coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tend to be a a run toward the fire kind of (laughs) guy. And I think that this specialty suits that because Mm -hmm. You know, you never know what, what you're going to get called about. Um, that keeps me busy. That keeps me mindful. And I think that's the most important part of, of uh, managing your, 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 your work and, mm-hmm. and your stress and everything else is, is just being busy. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so I created that, you know, on myself to not really block off time to do the inpatient stuff. I do it when I can. I do it in between. But but I do it in order to, to keep my pace up and, and mm. stay busy because that's really what attracted me mm. to gastroenterology in the first place mm-hmm. was doing that, seeing that as a third-year medical student where, you know, the fellow would say, oh, go see this patient in this room, and then I would finish writing up the consult, and she'd page me and say, hey, meet me in the ER. There's a guy throwing up blood, and then we'd go see that, and then we'd go up and round with the attending, and then they'd say the OR's ready, and we'd go down and do an EGD, and then we, you know, get called back to the OR and see somebody else. And then we go finish rounding and then it would be time to start clinic. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that is, is what I enjoy about what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's super cool because I feel like for some people, maybe it's not being busy that like drew them to their specialty. But I think for yourself, it's cool that you knew that's what drew you to it. So you kind of built your practice to like mimic what you know you enjoy. So that's really cool. Um, yeah. And so it, it also is another part of it is is just kind of again we talk about you know we we had meant we had mentioned about me telling stories is is that uh i like to think of the 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 people that you know influenced me most Mm -hmm. and uh when i was a fourth year medical student um i had uh an elective family medicine rotation scheduled and the the family doctor who I was supposed to rotate with called me and said, oh, look, my mom's sick and she lives in Chicago and I'm going to have to be, you know, out of town for right. a few weeks. You're going to have to find another rotation. You know, I didn't know what to do. I went back to campus and I was like, so I saw some of my classmates and I was like, where did you guys do your rotation? I need, I'm, I got to scramble. I got to find a rotation for Monday. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my classmates said, oh, you know, uh, you should rotate with my dad. You know, he, he's a DO. He's a family doctor. He doesn't, he's not on, he doesn't always get students but you know he gets a couple a year he's a great teacher and he's amazing an amazing guy you'd love him I I can call him and get you set up mm-hmm. and so you know she calls me and the next thing I know like I get an email from him and he's like I'm so excited to, <laughs> to have you start and like he like emailed me like you know um you know like directions like to his you know uh-huh. office and things like that and, like he was you know super old school guy and and so you know I I showed up you know, the first day he said, meet me at seven. And so we started seeing patients at 7.30. And, and so we started at 7.30 and we're just banging them out like one after another, right? And we're just just crushing it, seeing patient after patient after patient. And, and you know, he, he's, 
he keeps quoting, you know, have you read this, the paper on this? Oh, it's a Hallmark study, and he's quoting. He's, like, he's super academic. He's super current. He's just like, you know, and I'm, he's, I'm just blown away by this guy. Mm-hmm. And he's just patient after patient after patient. He's, he's quote, like I said, quoting all these, these studies and teaching me so much. And, and it's like, you know, it's like 5 o'clock, right? And he, like, reaches under his desk, right? And he pulls out an insure. And he's like, do you want one? And I'm like <laughs> thinking to myself, no, I don't want one. I'm in my 20s. You're 57 years old. Like, I can do this. Like, no problem, right? And, and like, he's like, okay. And he chugs his insure, and then we keep going, right? We keep seeing patients. And so at about 7 o'clock, wow. his wife comes in, who is his office manager. And she was like, hey, um, you know, I'm leaving. You better get going, you know? And he's like, I, I know, I know. We're finishing up. We're finishing up. And so he's like, all right, okay, so do you want to follow me or do you want me to drive you and then I'll bring you back to your car later? And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, oh, I have another, I have evening hours at my other clinic. Oh, my God. And so he went and then we saw patients until like, you know, for, for like another hour and a half, right? And so I was like, this guy, like, it was amazing, right? And I went home and I just like crashed, right? Yeah. Woke up the next day, showed up the next day. And he shows up and he's like, Remember that paper I quoted on type 2 diabetes and ACE inhibitors? I printed out a copy for, for you. And I also, when I got home last night when I was on the treadmill, I read this article in JAMA. And, and here's a copy of that because I think it's interesting because remember that kid we saw? It? And I was like, this guy's a machine. <laughs> and so, you know, I just thought, that's how I want to work. Mm. Like, you know, he lo- you know he, like I said, he'd been doing it for a long time, but he was so enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. He loved it. He had a ton of energy. And I was like, that's my guy. Mm-hmm. I feel like that energy is like contagious too, and it's like really inspiring. It just makes you wanna like do the same thing. Crazy. Um, is he like still one of your mentors? Well, he passed away, mm-hmm. but I think of him every day. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I, I guess you kind of talked about GI on the procedural aspect. Like, what percentage would you say is procedural versus more like consulting and stuff? Yeah. So. Certainly, adult gastroenterology is far more procedurally oriented, especially with sc- screening colonoscopies. Right, right, right. Um, I do a lot of procedures, but it's more because of the sheer volume of patients that mm-hmm. I see. I tend to practice pretty conservatively. I mean, I love scoping people. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. I love procedures. That's why I went into this. Um, but yeah, but, but it, it is, you know, I would say... At my busiest, I probably do, you know, five or six proce- five or six procedures per week. Okay. Um, on on kind of busy procedure weeks. Um, uh, that's about that's about an a- actually that's about an average week. Mm-hmm. Um, busier weeks will be a little bit more, uh, slower weeks a little bit less. But now that I have a a partner for the past mm-hmm. almost four years, you know, I do less just because we're we're kind of splitting the patients. Mm-hmm. And then for procedures, is it just scoping, or what other procedures? Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the most common procedures are endoscopies, upper endoscopies, and colonoscopies. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- you know, uh, I do a lot of liver biopsies, mm-hmm. um, and then we do a lot of kind of what we call therapeutic endoscopies, so foreign body removals, banding mm-hmm. esophageal varices, cauterizing mm-hmm. GI bleeds, um, uh, putting in dilating uh, esophageal strictures mm-hmm. or putting in stents uh, in strictured esophaguses. We do a lot of uh, gastrostomy tube placements we do along mm-hmm. with the surgeons as well. So I guess going off of that, what are the top 
like three most common diagnoses that you see? Uh, irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, and <laughs> functional dyspepsia. So, 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 yeah. I mean, if you ask me when I started my career, what's the most common problem th that you see? I would have probably said constipation. Most people, pediatric gastroenterologists, mm -hmm. would say that. I probably would say acid reflux, and then you know I probably would have said, oh, probably like IBS or functional problems. And but now, by far, you mm. know, uh, functional gastrointestinal disorders, which you know I kind of define as a change in how your gut functions, either from a motor standpoint or a sensory standpoint, driven by three things: diet, your microbiome, and changes to your microbiome, and then emotions and stress and anxiety. And mm. by far. I would say almost 10 times more than anything else I see, it's functional problems like IBS. Mm -hmm. I see at, le at least one new patient per day, wow. uh, usually two patients per day, new patients, plus a handful of follow-ups mm -hmm. per day. Yeah. I guess that's kind of helpful, like, since you have that holistic approach, I guess, like, also being able to tie in, like, the emotional stressors and, like, diet and nutrition, but also, like, the biology of it, too. So that's kind of a cool tie into your, your training. Um, so are these uh, most common cases, I guess, unique to Hawaii, or do you think it's pretty um, national? Yeah, no, it, it's pretty, it's it's universal, mm -hmm. and, and I, I, I stay in close contact with the, the, the people that I trained with and, mm -hmm. um, you know, my co-fellows, and, and they're, they're seeing the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, so it's pretty, it's pretty universal. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it's been common, and, you know, and it just depends, again, when it comes to pediatric gastroenterology, how you kind of approach that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, you know, a lot of people hate taking care of functional problems mm -hmm. because, mm, you know, stress, right. talk about, you know, um, but I want to see kids get better. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, I've been, I've been very sort of shaped by the experiences I had as a fellowship uh, uh, during my fellowship and in, in the patients that I saw. And so you know, I put a lot of effort into getting, helping get functional kids better. Mm -hmm. And I'm also fortunate that, you know, for the past almost six years, I do a functional gastroenterology clinic with mm -hmm. a nurse practitioner okay. from behavioral health. So mm -hmm. she's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but she kind of functions as both. Mm -hmm. And we see patients together and then she kind of continues on with basically being a therapist mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, She's amazing and incredibly effective, and, and, and that has really, you know, helped us to help a lot of kids that I right. think in a lot of other places, they wouldn't get that help because, you know, that opportunity just isn't there. It's mm -hmm. one of the things which I think, you know, I am fortunate here in Hawaii to have been able to, mm. to kind of create that, that clinic mm -hmm. because historically – when I would see an anxious kid with a functional problem, I would say, you should go see behavioral health. And most of the time they wouldn't go. And I get it, right? Yeah. I'm asking an anxious kid to go see a stranger and talk about uncomfortable problems, right. right? So how did I get around that? Well, I walk into a room and I say, hi, I'm Dr. King. This is Sherry. She's a nurse practitioner. We work together. I ambush them and they're stuck. <laughs> but what I've found, and this is what I suspected when I pitched the job to her, is that if I can get somebody who's nice and cares in a room with an anxious kid, 
and they get comfortable over that hour we spend together. Mm -hmm. And she says, well, what do you think about seeing me back next week and we can start working on coping skills and mindfulness? Mm -hmm. They say yes, right? Because it's almost like if some, an acquaintance texts you and says, hey, do you want to meet for coffee? And you're like, uh, it's easy to say no, mm -hmm. right? On yeah. a text message. But it's a lot harder to do it in person. <laughs> True. And if I can get them there, look, I get it. I, s I tell everyone, look, therapy hurts. It's not easy. It's a lot of work, right? I, I you know, my wife is a pediatric sports medicine doctor. You know, she sends kids to physical therapy all the time. Mm -hmm. And the therapists stretch you and strengthen you and bend your arms and legs and right and it hurts it's mm -hmm. painful and then at the end of the session they say we'll see you next week here's your home exercise program i want you to do these exercises <laughs> every single night for the next week and then i'm going to torture you more next week it hurts therapy hurts and this these kids but again if you get them in the right hands you get them with mm -hmm. the right provider they get better mm -hmm. and that's rewarding mm -hmm. A lot of pediatric gastroenterologists don't have that same mm -hmm. approach that I do. Yeah. yeah, that's super cool. Um, yeah, I think just building the space to like have that relationship be built before you kind of like ask them to do anything else is like super key. Um, but I guess in addition to behavioral health, what other specialists are you working most closely with? Yeah, so again, I, I, I'm pretty unique. Uh, in that I, I, you know, basically I had a, a, a blank slate here mm. coming to Hawaii. And, um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the first things that I, I, you know, was made aware to me is that dietary services aren't covered by insurance mm. in Hawaii, which if I'm going to provide the best care to my patients, they deserve the expertise of a nutritionist, right? Mm. And so initially I got a grant to pay the dietitian and now the dietitian has a desk in my office and we work incredibly close together. Mm -hmm. When I first started, there was me as a pediatric gastroenterologist and Dr. Sid Johnson was the one pediatric surgeon. And when I was a fellow and in most places on planet earth, pediatric gastroenterology and pediatric surgery have an adversarial relationship. Oh. But he and I, had our offices next to each other. And early on, we said, hey, you know, when I was a fellow of GI, did the surgery, did the G-tube surgeries, surgery did the Nissen G-tubes. What do you think about doing these together? He said, okay. And so we started doing gastrostomy tube placements together. And we started doing a lot of therapeutic procedures together, mm -hmm. like dilations and stent placements. And it works out really well, and we have a great relationship. And after we added two more surgeons, we have we just have an incredible relationship. And all of my friends and that I trained with, and co and colleagues around the country, they're jealous of this, you know, relationship I have with pediatric surgery and the support I have with pediatric mm -hmm. surgery. So that's been huge. Um, uh, so I work, you know, I work really closely again with behavioral health, with pediatric surgery, with nutrition. Um, uh, I did an autism gastroenterology clinic at Shriners mm -hmm. with Ryan Lee, where we first met. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so that's probably, I think, but, I, but also, you know, 
working with you know the the hospitalists are incredible um mm -hmm. the, you know, the er doctors the nicu so you know the pediatric icu so really it, it's medicine in hawaii is is so personal we all know mm -hmm. each other we all have each other's cell phone numbers we all are kind of in this together and so yeah i have i have pretty close personal professional relationships with with the majority of of, of you know pediat pediatricians and pediatric specialists mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome i feel like the more i hear just about like so many different specialties coming in the more i learn like how much of a team like sport medicine really is uh, so that's really fun for me like coming from a sports background and everything i think having the team is is really important um so i guess besides some of the functional things what's one of the most like interesting or challenging cases you've managed in your career one of my my kind of passion projects in a sense is that I gave grand rounds about four years ago, and the, the, the title of my grand rounds was Not All Cyclic Vomiting is Cyclic Vomiting. And so there's a condition called cyclic vomiting, and the, the sort of a consensus statement, sort of a guideline algorithm of how to approach cyclic vomit, vomiting was published um, in 2008 whenever I was a fellow, and, and I still use this. But what it, it's, it's pretty easy using this algorithm to give kids a diagnosis of cyclic vom vomiting. And one of my, like I said, passion projects has been finding out a different diagnosis, not just accepting the diagnosis of cyclic vomiting mm. uh, in these kids. And so um, I gave this grand rounds, and so it, it went through a series of cases where a patient came to me either for a second opinion from other gastroenterologists, often on the mainland, um, or just diagnosed by a pediatrician with mm -hmm. cyclic vomiting, and they came to me and I figured out that, no, they don't just have cyclic vomiting. They had a malrotation, or they had UPJ obstruction, or they had eosinophilic esophagitis, or they had some other underlying mm. treatable condition, um, or it was all functional. And part of why I did that, why this became kind of a passion sort of project for me, is that you know when I, when I started my fellowship, right, the day before I started orientation, the, the the graduating fellow walked me around and said, "This here's this patient in this bed. Here's this patient. Here's this patient in bed five. This kid has cyclic vomiting syndrome. He's he throws up all the time. He'll be in this hospital f for a month until we can get back to him tolerating his gastrojejunal jejunal feeds, and he'll go home. But the nurses don't even bother putting anybody in that room because he's gonna come back and you know in, in a week anyway. He lives yeah. here, and so you know we spent like." you know, a year with this kid bouncing back and forth and, you know, and then all of a sudden he just wasn't there. Like he just didn't come back. And, you know, so I know all the fellows from all the other fellowship programs in Philadelphia. And so it's, you know, it's texting them and, hey, you know, is this kid in your hospital? Because he, he you know, he lived here and now he did, doesn't show up. And so they're like, no, we never heard of him. Now, you know, so whatever. And then a few months later, me and one of my co-fellows were, were walking through Fairmont Park in Philadelphia to go to like somebody's barbecue, right? <laughs> and who's sitting there but this kid, right? And he's like 14 or something. And he's sitting there with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And we're like, hey man, where you been? And he was like, 
oh, yeah, I don't throw up anymore. And we were like, what do you mean you don't throw up anymore? What? You throw up more than anybody in the history of throwing up. <laughs> like, what do you mean you don't throw up anymore? He's like, I don't throw up anymore. And so then this woman comes over, this older woman, and she says, uh, can I help you guys? Yeah. Why are you talking to my grandson? And we're like, oh, you know, we work at DuPont Hospital. We used to take care of him. And, like, and she's like, yeah, he doesn't throw up anymore. And we're <laughs> like, well, yeah, we, well, how? And so she was like, well, he was at our, th they were at our house for dinner, and the parents started arguing, and he started throwing up. And it isn't the first time that it happened. And, and so we realized that their toxic mm. relationship was bad for him, and he, was, he, would, he would start throwing up whenever they fought. And so we just told him, he's, he's going to live with us for a while. And he hasn't thrown up since. And, mm. and it, it, you know, it brought me to that functional you know, diagnosis, and it, it, it just got me to look at this condition differently. Because that kid, we actually sent to the world's expert in cyclic vomiting, a guy wow. named B. Lee, who was in Milwaukee at the time. And he sent him back and said, this is the worst case of cyclic vomiting I've ever seen in my career. I don't know how to help you. Oh and like, gosh. that was it. But it turned out to be functional. So, right. so my kind of last slide is not all cyclic vomiting is cyclic vomiting. Usually, it's functional. But getting to that diagnosis sometimes uh -huh. takes asking the hard questions, right? right? And being the bad guy. But um, so that's kind of what I've, I've, I've strived to do. Mm -hmm. So I guess like when you have an initial consult, is a lot of your questions like about like emotional, like housing stress, what's it like at home? Well, yeah, so, um, you know, I, 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 I sort of, work up to that so mm -hmm. a lot of times you know sometimes people will volunteer it right so i usually start out with just the you know tell me about your stomach pain how you know how bad is your pain you know where does it hurt does it radiate any you know the mm -hmm. standard Clearly, questions yeah. right but i know i'm i'm gonna get to that mm -hmm. right and i'm gonna get to those hard questions but i have to right. i have to connect with my patient i have mm -hmm. to build rapport with them so i kind of ease into that and so a lot of times I'll, I'll go through the, the, the nuts and bolts stuff, finish examining my patient, and then I'll kind of, you know, when mm -hmm. I have that connection, I'll, I'll, I'll throw something out there, you know, about, you know, and a lot of times it'll be asking about school, mm -hmm. and that'll be my lead-in, and then I get into the emotions. And, um, but, yeah, you do have to, for me, I, I, I tend to feel like I need to make that connection mm -hmm. first so that patients trust me. Um, that they know where I'm coming from mm -hmm. and that I want to help them. Right. So are most of your patients, like, adolescents, or do you see, like, congenital, like, really young kids, too? I see everything across uh -huh. the board, yeah. Okay, so what are some common misconceptions about GI that you found to be either true or untrue? I think the biggest thing that I learned is that when you're trained, whether it's during a residency or when I was trained as a fellow, a lot of the decisions that were made weren't made with the patient's best interest in mind. Mm. They were made with the doctor's best interest in mind. Mm. And the simple example is saying to an attending, well, do we, you know, do we really think we need to do a procedure on this kid? I mean, do we need to do a liver biopsy? I don't, we, I don't, I think it's going to be normal. And the answer I would most commonly get was, 
well, yeah, but you don't want to miss something. You don't want to miss something. You don't want to look bad, right? So, so either for medical legal reasons or for your own ego, you don't want to look bad reasons are why a lot of medical decisions are made. Mm. And so, you know, I made that choice that I'm going to put the patient, the patient's best interest as my number one pri priority. Mm. And that's why I, f I am conservative. So I offer everybody, look, here's what, we, here's what I can offer you. We can be conservative. We can treat you this way. We can check some labs and studies and provide some reassurance, or I can scope you. I love scoping people, like I said. You know, I'll offer patients that. We have that conversation. But, you know, if they ask me, well, do, 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 do we need to do the scope? I'll say, I would tell you if you need it. If somebody needs to be scoped, I would tell you. There's nothing else we can do. That's it. But really putting the patient's best interest in mind, not the medical legal interest, not the, am I going to look bad if I miss this? I'm beyond that. But a lot of people in big academic centers have, they're, they're, they're almost forced to think that way. They don't want to be the black sheep. You ask my friends that I train with, they'll tell you, if I went to any big academic institution, I'm going to be the black sheep. I do things differently. I feel like I'm doing things better. I try. Okay, so just to switch gears kind of into the changing nature of medicine, um, how has COVID kind of changed your practice or did it change it at all? Yeah, uh, without question. So for, I don't know, two and a half or three years, I've been saying to my administrators, look, we need to start doing telehealth because it is perfect for my practice. I don't really need to touch people. I just need to talk to people. Mm. And if we did telehealth, I could reach far more people, number one. There's a lot of neighbor island patients that don't like to get on a plane and fly to Oahu. I'm not going to see them because I don't do neighbor island outreach clinics because if I'm on another island, I'm not here and they need me here. Secondly, I take care of a lot of medically fragile kids, kids with disabilities. And that's hard for patients to come to my office. That's hard for parents to get them there. And so I, again, I, I don't reach as many patients. You know, follow-ups need to be rescheduled often because of these things. So I kept saying, I can reach far, far more patients if we do telehealth. Mm -hmm. And the answer I kept getting is, well, we can't get insurance companies to agree on how we're going to pay for it. And so then what happened? COVID happened. And two weeks later, I have a camera on my desk and insurance is covering telehealth visits. And it's been a revelation. And my patients love it. Mm -hmm. They absolutely love it. Um, and, you know, I can be super efficient because I don't have to wait for patients to be roomed and wait right. for turnover. So it's hang up with one, click on the next one. Um, so it really has been a silver lining for me mm. uh, in that regard. Um, the other impact that, you know, uh, COVID has had is on kids with IBS and functional abdominal pain. So mm. um, the interesting thing was that if you ask me in April, almost every single IBS patient that I had that I diagnosed prior to COVID in April, they were all better. 
because none of them were in school. <laughs> none of them were like faced with the kid who was bullying them anymore, right? And school, you know, schools didn't really have distance learning figured out, so kids were just like cruising. I mean, my own 12-year-old was done with school at 10.30 a.m., right? <laughs> and so everybody was better. And parents would be like, yeah, now that there's no school, she's all better. You might be right about this stress being the driver for her symptoms. And I was like, it only took a pandemic for you to realize this, right? But then in May, I started getting all these new cases of people who never had gastrointestinal complaints in their entire life. And all of a sudden, they have stomach pain. They have diarrhea. They're throwing up. And why? Well, because they went from kids that are getting up in the morning and double-checking their homework and then going to school and, you know, going to the homeroom and going to the class and seeing their friends between classes and then, you know, taking notes and, you know, and then, you know, work, studying during, you know, study hall and coming home and going to band practice and soccer practice and doing their homework and to sitting in front of a screen mm. and thinking, right? And that's the thing about it. I used to say, and again, with the, the, this, with the screen time and everything else and social media, you know, spikes, um, that's hard on kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I used to say that, you know, I know what makes kids, I know what stresses kids out. You know, school, friends and peer relationships, their parents, their siblings, extracurricular things like sports and clubs and activities. But really, this, this kind of social media juggernaut is, a, is, is, is huge in, in this. And, and it's been, you know, during COVID, it's just enhanced because, you know, you know your generation, this younger <laughs> generation, is, is a generation of raiders and judgers. And in turn, kids are constantly feeling raided and judged. Mm. And, and I think that's just you know, been, been enhanced during COVID. And so it's why I'm seeing far more functional stuff than I was pre-COVID. Mm. So you kind of saw a decline and then like a rapid increase. Yeah. Interesting. Um, that's interesting too, though, because I think we had talked to an adult GI doc and he was saying that uh, for, I guess, adult GI, like the patient population had dropped a lot because people weren't doing elective procedures and stuff anymore with COVID. But I guess for you, like with the addition of telehealth, it became a lot more efficient? Yeah, so I mean, certainly, you know, I've done far fewer procedures uh -huh. um, since COVID started yeah. because people, you know, don't want to do, uh, they want to put off elective procedures. Mm -hmm. They don't want to come to the hospital if they can avoid it. Um, so certainly, um, you know, that, uh, that, that has decreased. Um. Interesting. Uh, okay, so I'll just move on to, I think, Couple last questions since we're kind of running short on time. Um, so the first one is just like with work-life balance, I know we mentioned probably before, um, not while we were on the recording, but that you're on call every other week. Um, do you still think that you have t enough time outside of your work to like hang with your family or do other things you enjoy? Yeah, so I, I will say that uh, historically I, I sacrificed a lot of time and family time for work. Mm -hmm. I've ruined a lot of holidays f by having to go in when I'm on call mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, have had plans change. I really did. I, I, I'm fortunate to have an incredibly understanding wife and understanding kids. 
um, because I did treat work as kind of the priority that I mm -hmm. wanted, you know, when I, you know, when I leave the house to go to work, I'm going to be at work until my work's done mm -hmm. and that's it. Uh, and I looked at it that way for the majority of my career. Um, but the past really, and it, it started kind of pre-COVID, I, I did sort of, you know, have a fundamental shift in, in my outlook and uh, I've made, you know, uh, time with my family a, a much bigger priority mm -hmm. um, so that I told my wife, I will, you know, I'll pick the kids up from school every single day, no matter what. And I, you know, I work through my lunch, through lunch. And that instead of taking that time, mm. I see patients through lunch. And then I take my little break block between 2.30 and 3.30 to get my kids every day, mm. um, spend more time with them. But we also got a puppy and he's <laughs> also become like the priority. Uh, and so I, I have really in the past year and a half, mm. really tried to make a fundamental change and 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 kind of commit to more time to, to, to my kids and to my family and to my puppy. Um, does Hawaii need more PGI docs or what's like the job look outlook for PGI docs in Hawaii? Aside from Wyoming, which has zero pediatric gastroenterologists, Hawaii has the fewest number of board certified pediatric gastroenterologists per 100,000 kids in the entire country. Oh. So yes, we desperately need more. Okay, so just to finish off, we're gonna do some advice. Um, so I guess you can answer either what you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your training or just a general advice for medical students or someone interested in PGI. You know, don't don't be afraid to think differently or be differently, uh, or or be different um, and think outside the box and and be that black sheep. Because mm -hmm. again, I don't think I would be happy if I mm. if I stayed in an academic framework. Um, I would listen to my mentor. We I'd walk you know we'd walk to our cars together every night, and I would you know just for advice and and I would I would just listen to him kind of vent and listen to his frustrations every night and and I, I just I just didn't want that right and so I think the, the 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 best way to summarize what you want out of your career is I say that I leave work happy every day I'm not happy to leave work and there's a difference mm. Okay, well, that wraps it up for us. Um, thank you just so much for coming to share today. I learned so much not only about, like, what you do as a PGI, but I think also, like, how important it is to take that holistic approach, especially with a lot of pediatrics patients where they have um, potentially a lot of under underlying causes. Um, so just being willing to dig deeper and build that relationship. And like you said, not always just think, like, how we were taught in med school, or I'm sure in the rest of our training, but yeah, just thinking outside the box. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Okay, that's all we have for you today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Doc's Talk Story. Um, and we hope you were able to gain something from our conversation. And don't forget to head on over to our website to give us your feedback and input on who you'd like to hear from next.